I continue on with our study from last uh, last Wednesday night. If I can find the clicker here, we'll be ready to go. As we were talking last Wednesday night, we looked at verses 1 and 2, spent some time dealing with both of those. The Bible simply says there, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God and the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He says, My grace, or may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, we ended our study last Wednesday night by thinking about verse number two, three things that Jude is praying for to be multiplied to the, to the ones to whom he is writing. And we noted last Wednesday night that the word multiplied means to increase or abound or even given an increased abundance is the idea that he is presenting there. Uh, They were to have these three things. The mercy, of course, was compassion or pity. The peace, as we looked at it, was the peace that they had resulting from their trust in God. And then also we looked at the love, the active concern that they needed uh, for each other and, of course, that God had for them. We want to spend our time tonight looking at verse number 3. We won't get out of verse number 3. I will go ahead and tell you that. We'll spend the entire time on this one verse because there is a lot that is there. And so it it is an important verse. Uh, It's a very informative verse, one that we need to consider and and try to mind the depths of all that Jude says here. But as we look at it, it's one that, that not only was relevant to the people of his day, the ones back in the first century, but it's also relevant, as is the Bible, all of it. It's relevant to us today as well. And so let's simply read together, and then we'll come back and break it down piece by piece. He says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." Now, what I want us to do is to break it down, as I said. I want us to take it apart, and we'll look at it. First of all, we have the word beloved. We've encountered that word in both uh, 2 John and 3 John in our recent studies, and we've we've talked about that. We know that uh, uh, as Jude begins the the chapter here, the, the letter that he writes, uh, he, he writes uh, to those who are called beloved of God. And again, we won't spend a lot of time in dealing with that, that term. We understand that it has to do with the, the love that, that God had for them because of um, uh, the life that they were living and uh, so forth. Uh, what I want us to look at goes on to the uh, sort of the end of that first line. Although I was very eager. Let's talk about that, what he says, when he says he was very eager. Uh, It seems that he had had something on his mind that he wanted to say to whomever it is that he's writing to. It it was something that we might say that he was, uh, he cared much about, that he was excited about. Of course, he's going to identify it as the common salvation, which we'll come uh, back and talk about. But as Jude introduces what he is, what he's going to do with in the letter, he said he was he wanted to do one thing. He was very eager. The way the 
English Standard Version translates it. Uh, what does he mean, though? How, how eager was he to write to them about the common salvation? Uh, let's go to another usage of that, that word. Go to the book of Second Peter chapter 1 at verse number 5. 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse number 5. So we'll, so we'll grasp how much that Jude was wanting to write. Uh, about the, uh, as we'll talk about again in a minute, the common salvation. How, how much was he wanting to write? Somebody read uh, for us 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 5. Whoever gets there, just go ahead and read it out loud. You know how we do it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue. All right, Peter tells us to, uh, to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, but... How does he tell us to do that? What, what instruction does he give us about how to supplement? Make what? Make every effort is the way that it's translated there. That's the same words that are used in the book of Jude, verse number 3. You see, what Jude says is not that I, you know, I, I would really like to have written to you, but his full intentions were, he, he was making every effort as it was to write to them about the common salvation. And so, you know, when we look at it and we see, well, he was very eager to do that, uh, you know, that may say one thing to us, well, yeah, he wanted to, but there's more to it than that. He really wanted to address that topic. You know what? I'm pretty sure him addressing the common salvation would, been, would have been an easier letter for him to write than the one that he had to write. You know, there's some sermons, if you've ever preached or taught Bible classes, there's some sermons and some Bible lessons that are easier to teach than others. You know, when you're having to confront various things that are, that are wrong, uh, those are not easy things to preach. It's not easy to preach even on, on things like hell. If you, you know, you want to help people to be inspired and yet at the same time have the proper reverence and the proper fear of, uh, of, of hell and things of that nature. But it's a whole lot easier to preach on heaven than it is to preach on hell unless you just really have a sour attitude. Okay? And, and so I think what Jude is telling us here is that he wanted to address a brighter topic. He wanted to say something that was more encouraging in nature. He wanted them to have uh, uh, some joy, I guess you might say, in, in the salvation, and, and he wanted to talk about that. But something happened that needed Attention, And we'll, again, come back and talk about that more in just a minute. But he says, and you know, it's like what, how it's translated there in 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 5. He was making his effort to do that. All right? But he also says here in verse number 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. That's the topic, of course. That's the, the thing that he wanted to address. But... What does he mean about when he uses that phrase, common salvation? Well, let's take the two words apart. Number one, common. 
What does the word common mean? Well, the word that's translated common here literally means shared by all. Shared by all. That's, that's what the word means, shared by all. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. We have a usage of the word there. And I'm taking us through this because I want us to see the usage of the word as, as we progress through the scriptures. Okay, somebody got Acts 2, verse 44? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Had all things in common. Talking about the Christians. And so what did they have in common? Well, they, if anyone had need, what did the other brothers and sisters who could do? They shared with them. They helped them. And, and you know, in the beginning of the church, especially when people had traveled from so far away for the day of Pentecost and all of the events, or, or, or rather the, the Passover, and all of the events took place with the death of Jesus and the earthquake and the resurrection of Jesus and all of those kinds of things, you know, that, uh, that took place with the crucifixion and then the resurrection, people seemingly stayed and as a result, later would hear the gospel preached. Remember on the day of Pentecost, there were people from all parts of the world who had come together. And so they had spent almost two months there. Well, could you take a trip and stay away from work and from all of the things that you do for two months? Uh, you might sort of get in a tight. Well, the brothers and sisters, those who were Christians, helped because they knew the greatness. They had all things common. They, they, as it were, what did they do? They shared what they had. They shared. Okay? Let's look at another passage. Go to the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 14. Acts chapter 10, verse 14. This is going to be in the context of, of Peter seeing a vision... And uh, it's lunchtime, he's hungry, and God tells him to arise, Peter, kill and eat. When he sees the sheet, the vision of the sheet being let down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it. What does, what does Peter say? But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, un that is common or unclean. All right, uses the term common. Here, again, same word. What does he mean by that? Well, it has the same definition, being shared by all. But the things that he's talking about are the things that were forbidden of who? Who couldn't eat certain kinds of foods? Jews. What about the Gentiles? Could they enjoy a good barbecue every once in a while? Did God ever forbid them from eating of these things? The only, the only evidence we have of clean and unclean animals is given to the Jews. Somebody says, well, Noah took seven and two on the ark and he was before Moses. Well, yes, but God instructed him to take these different ones and God was the one who brought the animals to him. 
And Moses was the one who did the writing of the book of Genesis. And when he used the term clean and unclean, those people would understand it. Okay? And so, as we look at it here, these are things, these are animals that are eaten, shared, if you will, by all. He also throws in the idea of, uh, of unclean, uses the word unclean there. And that is the word which simply means impure. Impure. It can mean impure in, in a physical sense. It can mean impure in a moral sense. But he says, I've never eaten anything that, that's eaten by everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, or that is impure. Now look at another one. Look at another one. Look at Revelation. And this word is used several times, but look at Revelation 21, verse 27. Revelation 21, verse 27. It's interesting the way that it's translated here in this passage. Okay. Whoever gets there, read it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right. Nothing that is that defiles King James. You reading from King James or New King James? New King James. New King James. Somebody have uh, English Standard. But nothing unclean will okay. ever enter it, nor anyone who does does what is detestable or false. All right. He's talk. Uh, go. That's that's good. He's talking about uh, uh, the kingdom. Talking about heaven, kingdom of heaven. Uh, the word translated in the King James defiles. Word translated in the English standard, unclean. Now he's talking about entering into nothing. Let's substitute the definition for the word. Nothing, what's the definition again? Nothing shared by all is going to enter into heaven. Well, that sort of just washes that old saying, well, everybody's doing it down the drain, doesn't it? When everybody's doing it, you can pretty well count on the fact that that is not necessarily something good and probably something that's not going to get you to heaven. But, but notice, defile, unclean. The way I like to think about that is this. How many of you have ever gone somewhere and, and maybe shared a bowl of dip with somebody, you know, maybe maybe salsa, maybe cheese, maybe something, and everybody starts dipping out, not with a spoon, but with their chip, starts dipping out of the same bowl, and you notice somebody double dips. You know what we're talking about, don't you? What do you want to do with a bowl? Mm, well, I'm pretty well done. You know, I've had about all I want. Why? It's shared by, a lot of times when things are shared by all, this idea is that it can become defiled, unclean. Well, what about salvation? Does he use it in the stand, from the standpoint of unclean salvation or salvation shared by all? Well, surely salvation is not unclean. 
And so he's talking about salvation shared by all, which leads me to the next, my next question. How could that salvation that is shared by all, how, how could it remain clean? rather than becoming defiled or unclean? How could it remain clean? I think the answer to that, and we'll, we'll look in Scripture here to, to see if we can, is everybody does it the same way. The salvation comes to everyone by the same means, in the same way. Now let's go back in Scripture. Go back to the book of, uh, of uh, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And let's read together verses 7 through 9. Acts 15 verses 7 through 9. For context sake, before whoever's going to read starts reading for us, for the sake of context, this is when uh, uh, the, the leaders of the church of the first century had gathered together in Jerusalem, sometimes referred to simply as the Jerusalem Conference, because there were certain Jews who were teaching Gentile converts that they had to basically become Jews in order to be Christians. They had to follow the Jewish way of doing things, circumcision and so forth, and so they have this, uh, uh, this get-together, if you will, of the apostles and the elders and so forth. And they have this, this great discussion. Okay, So somebody read verses 7 through 9. Acts 15, verses 7 through 9. Okay. Now, what is it that Peter tells us? Well, there are a lot of things that we can glean from that, but number one, Peter said, or for our study's sake tonight, Peter said that by his own mouth, uh, the Gentiles were to hear the word of the gospel and do what? They were to be able to believe through the words that he taught, right? And what else did he say about them at the end of the passage there? Uh, he said that they were to hear the gospel and believe. Well, what was going to happen through their belief, through their faith? Their hearts would be purified, or English standard, cleansed. How? By, through, their faith. Now, how did that come to be? Well, there's one thing that I want you to notice about midways here. Peter points out to all those Jewish leaders who are gathered in Jerusalem that God made no distinction between us, 
Who are the us? Well, the us, Peter would be a Jew. He made no distinction between us Jews and them Gentiles. Now, what does he tie in here with making no distinction? By giving them the Holy Spirit, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us, he made no distinction between them. Where do we read how and where he gave them the Holy Spirit and made no distinction between them? Between Jew and Gentile. Where do we read that? What about Acts chapter number 10? At the house of Cornelius. Do you remember what happens back there at Acts chapter 10? Let's go back to chapter 10 and look at verses 44 through 48. 44 through 48. Just stay with me for a minute and we'll see the... Uh, we'll make the point that we're seeking to make. Okay? Somebody read Acts 10, 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. They of the circumcision who believed were amazed as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was also poured out on the Gentiles. But they heard them speaking in other languages and magnified God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just like us. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They, then they asked him to stay some days. Okay. Now let's, let's put the two together. Peter, Peter stands up, remember, in Acts chapter 15, and he tells about the, uh, how God had chosen him. If we backed up in chapter 10, that's where we were talking about the sheep and the animals being let down and common or unclean, uh, those kind of things, and God made it clear to him that what he had made clean, in other words, you go to the Gentiles and preach to them. You go with them. There's some men waiting on you to get you to go preach to Cornelius. Okay? But Peter goes, and if you look at Acts chapter 10, he tells them about Jesus. And while the Bible says in verse 44, while he was still saying these things, while he's still talking about Jesus, what happens? God allows his Holy Spirit to descend upon the people at Cornelius' house, the Gentiles who were there, and as evidence from heaven that God accepts them, he allows them to do the same things that the apostles were able to do on the day of Pentecost, some ten years earlier. And then, don't miss this part, when Peter sees that, what does he do? He asks a question, doesn't he? What does the question have to do with? Well, what was the baptism for? Do what? And then what did he do? He asked himself the question. He said, God, God's already shown to us what we need to be doing. 
He told them about Jesus, and then he tells them what? How to be saved through Jesus. Notice there's this particular word that he uses. He commanded them to be baptized. Now, what does that have to do with Acts chapter 15? Peter was to preach the gospel so that they could do what? So that they could, back there in Acts chapter 15 verse 7, hear the word of the gospel and believe. And how was he going to cleanse them? There at the end of that verse, through their faith. But what kind of faith? Well, the only kind that's ever mentioned in Scripture, obedient faith. You see, the whole point is this. God did everything for the Jew and the Gentile in relation to their salvation, and He required how much more of the Jew than He did of the Gentiles? Or how much more of the Gentiles than He did of the Jews? Not one thing. That's Peter's point. When you read the book of Acts and you start reading about those who are the saved, who are mentioned as being that, is there something that's common all the way through? That each one, each person that we read about their salvation in the book of Acts is told to do? To be... Baptized. He may say, repent and be baptized, right? Or he may tell them to believe, Acts chapter 16. But he also said something about baptism there because the very next thing we read is what? This jailer in Acts chapter 16 going that very same hour of the night to do what? To be baptized. You see, the whole point is this. When we read about the common salvation there in the book of Acts, or rather Jude, that common salvation is a salvation that comes to everyone in the same way. It's the idea that all are saved by the same one and in precisely the same way. Now, if Jude wanted to write about that, and that's the way it was in the first century. What makes us think it can be any different for us today? How could we preach a hundred different gospels, quote unquote, and still have salvation? Uh, one thing that you may want to take note of is the book of Titus chapter 1 at verse number 4. Not only do we have Jude writing about a common salvation, we have... Paul writing to Titus about a common faith. A common faith. His son, he says uh, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. And we're going to talk about that faith a little bit more as we uh, continue to develop verse number 3. But that common salvation is important. It's an important concept even for us today. All right, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. That's another interesting word 
found it necessary. Do you know what the word necessary, the definition of the word that's used is? Distress. Distress. Must needs of necessity. Look at Luke 21, verse 23. Luke 21, verse 23. To make it quick, I'll read it for us. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. The word distress is our word that we have here in the book of Jude, verse 3. Distress. Again, it's translated distress in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, Paul says, talking about marriage there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse number 4, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions. And then here's our word. Hardships. Hardships. Calamities. And then he goes on. Now, what is the point? What prompted Jude to write about something other than the common salvation? He said, I found it necessary. That's what it's translated for us. But something deeper is implied by the very word that he uses. And what is it? There's something so distressful that I have to change my topic. There's something that is so distressing, not necessarily to Jude. He was distressed because of what was happening, but because of what was happening to the people that he's writing to, the distress that they're under. Jude says, I had to write something else to you. I had to write these other things. I had to change in midstream here and write something to you. Found it necessary. Found it necessary to write, next word, appealing. Appealing to you. The word appealing means to invite, invoke, call for, exhort, entreat. Now, again, let's just look at some examples where the word is used. Uh, for the sake of time tonight, <clears throat> go to, uh, let's see, go to Mark chapter uh, 1 at verse 40. Mark chapter 1 at verse 40. I, I tell you what, go to Mark chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It's translated with the same word, almost, in both of those. Mark chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. We'll see, we'll see how strong this word is. Hunter, you got that one? And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jerry, by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. Okay? Which word do you suspect is our word that we find here in Jude verse 3? Translated appealing to you. What did Jairus do when he came to Jesus? He begged. Who did he beg for? Now, many of us in here are fathers, aren't we? Some of us have daughters. Can you imagine your own child, your own daughter being sick? At the point of death, and you go to someone that you believe could heal her, would you fall down at his feet and beg? That's what Jude says I'm doing to you. Due to the distress, the necessity, I am begging you to do something. I'm begging you to do something. Look at one more real quick. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. What did he do? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it shouldn't be. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Can you imagine Paul, Lord, just take this thing away from me. Just go, is that what Paul said he did? No, I begged him. Three times I begged him. I pleaded with him, take this away from me. I think perhaps almost with the same earnestness that Jairus had when begging for his daughter's life. But that's what Jude is saying that the Christians that he's writing to, that, that's what he's, he's I, am, I am pleading with you, I am begging you. Now, he's going to say to contend for the faith, okay? But in reality, what he's begging for them to do is what? If they're being taught wrongly, if they're being taught false doctrine, what is at stake? What is going to die? Maybe not the physical body, but the spirit is going to die. And that's, how, that's what... That's what Jude says. You know, with the earnestness that Jairus is begging for the life of his daughter, he is begging these Christians to stand up so that people don't die spiritually. New Testament Christians are not led astray. And that's what develops throughout the rest of the book of Jude. And so, in, <coughs> in talking about his purpose in writing... He tells them, I started to write about this. That's what I wanted to write about. But there, there was a distress in the wherever you are that needed to be addressed. And I'm begging you to stand up for the truth, to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, we, we didn't get all the way through, uh, so we'll have to quit and pick up with it uh, again next Wednesday night. But so much more here in verse number 3. And we've spent a, an entire class period just looking at a few of the words that are there. But yet so much more. And 
We'll try to do our best to take a look at it next Wednesday night.